You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! What is up? It is Doc Coyle, or I am Doc Coyle, <laughs> and it is the X-Man Podcast. Thank you for checking out the program. I hope everyone is having an excellent week. You know, I'm, I'm unique. A lot of people put their shows out on Mondays. Doc Coyle comes out on Tuesdays, all right? So that means you got to feel, you know, you got to feel for your week by the time Tuesday comes around. And my week so far is, is going, going pretty good. You know, I mean, like... Getting back with the diet, even though I, Saturday and Sunday I went a little went a little crazy. But that's all right. That's all right. I'm in a f- forgiving myself mode, and I'm I'm feeling pretty good about things. And you know, you guys know me. I'm an open book. I talk about my difficulties and when I'm, things are good, when things are bad, and I don't know. I'm in a good good space right now because I think I'm just. Sometimes you think the way to go is to grind, grind, go, go, go. That's how you gotta win, gotta win, and and then, then you, you feel like crap. And sometimes you just got, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let let things chill out for a little bit. And so that's that's been my vibe lately, and it's been overall pretty good. We have this week a very different kind of show. I mean, a while back, I feel like a year ago or so, even before that, I would do a little more kind of like topical type shows or things on a subject matter. I'd do like an NBA show, political show. I've really been doing that much of that outside of the election special I did with Phil Labonte not that long ago. And now I basically, I had some shows worked out, but they had to get pushed back. So I kind of scrambled to put something together and I had this idea in my head. And, you know, I talked about this a little bit before the conversation, but about the debate going on around the $15 minimum wage. And I was like, it just, this whole like economic thing and the way people think about economics, A, most of us don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's one of the hardest things to, unless you're a real expert on it, uh, you know, we're kind of almost, a lot of us just repeating the stuff that we hear from our favorite pundits or the people we follow. So we don't really have a lot of direct knowledge of it. And especially if you haven't studied these things for a long time. And so I, I always would think about the, 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 just the NBA or just all sports where I'm like, it's weird. Like the billionaires that own the teams, they made their money in this really open system with little regulation and they can avoid taxes and they can kind of screw over their workers. 
And then they go and buy these teams and then they have a system that's completely socialized <laughs> so that there could be quote unquote competitive balance. And I was like, this is kind of a ripe uh, discussion. Uh, this is something I probably would have written about, done an article on a few years back. But given the environment, I'm trying to, I don't know, everything post-election, I'm trying to kind of have this healthy distance with myself and politics because I felt so much of the the last four years was at fever pitch. It was very much like a, a lightning rod. It felt like some of these things, they were like, we had to talk about this. We had to, it was difficult to turn away, right? It was like a car crash to some degree. Uh, but I think a lot of that is unhealthy. And so I've tried to have this really healthy relationship with how I understand politics and social issues. Uh, and even though I think people probably think I'm like super lefty, it's just really, I'm, I consider myself a center left, like a centrist. And, <laughs> you know, last week I got, uh, I got pretty shit on pretty hard on a Twitter thread where I was kind of going against the lefties in this, <laughs> in this one, one post. And it, it was just funny because, you know, in a sense, people on a, an extreme, right, either far left or far right, they hate the moderates more than they hate the opposite side, which is like the, what we would call the horseshoe effect, where you go so far to the extremes, they start meeting kind of on the other side. And one one person, they described me as like a, with my rationality, rational, pragmatic stuff, but he's saying it in a bad way. And I, I, I just think it's funny because, listen, I think there's a big place for the activist wing of any movement. Uh, but I think there's also a big place for the facilitators and the kind of the grease the wheels in in the middle. And things have gotten more on the extremes. And, and some of the arguments people were making was that we need, no, we need to go more extreme. The problem is we're too much in the middle. Uh, and that when things are too centrist things kind of don't get done. It becomes like these half measures. And I think there's actually a great point to be made for that, that there's these compromises. So people like, so people vote for Biden and they want him to do minimum wage and they want him to do COVID relief and they want him to do, uh, infrastructure, all this stuff. Um, but I'm like, this motherfucker has been there six weeks. <laughs> it's like, hold on. I mean, it's just going to happen. You know, maybe not everything's going to happen. Uh, but I think to me, the central point of being a quote unquote centrist is all I do is when someone is maybe coming from a different perspective politically is I just give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not coming to me with an argument because they're evil or crazy. And that's what people don't really get. It's like, I just, I take them that if someone wants lower taxes or they don't want nationalized health care, that they legitimately feel that it's bad for the country, right? But a lot of people on both ends presume, well, the left wants nationalized health care so that they can enslave everyone. It's like, no, I think they just want people to feel better and get some medicine and shit. I mean... <laughs> You know, and, and vice versa, you know, I could, I could think of a, a million different examples the, the other way. 
and so so and and that's but it, but it, that's led me here over years and years of evolution as a thinker and the funny thing and, and the re- reason why i think people don't really get it with that is to me it's kind of like religion right so people will believe a religion and most of the religion seems like if you're not that religion you won't get into heaven or you don't counter and i'm like so i'm like what's the likelihood of all the religions you just happen to pick the one that was right that, that that seemed like always like a weird contradiction to me. Like, so you just got lucky that yours one was the right one. And to me, the extreme left, extreme right thing is the same idea. I'm like, so you're saying this one side is right on everything. <laughs> you got so lucky. You happen to be really into the part side that was just 10 out of 10. They got every issue right. And I'm like, no, it's just the other side. They, they have some points. If you listen to it, it's like, okay, that doesn't mean I agree with them, but it doesn't mean they don't have any validity, what they're saying. You're just, you're just listening to the idea, you know? And it's also accepting you're not always going to get exactly what you want. And that's what people don't really get. So anyway, that's me explaining my form of centrism with a little, little lefty vibe in there but i you know i love everybody you know even if i don't disagree with you i mean unless you're you know a neo-nazi i'm not not loving you you know i'll give you a nod like yo man go uh don't be a nazi (laughs) figure that out all right we don't have a sponsor this week which is which is fine sometimes i like just just kind of flow into it but i wanted to just give a little little setting up of this so we have mr nelson blake on the show this is third time on on the show he is former guitar player of New York metalcore band Locked in a Vacancy, but he's more known these days as comic book artist, a you know, a illustrator, Marvel, DC, Image, Top Cow. He's he's kind of a big deal in that realm. But the reason why I have him on the show all the time is not for his talent, even though that is uh, incredible. Is I just you know, I, I, as I say, I call him the impresario. He's kind of like the intellectual and philosophical guru that I bring in to bounce ideas off of. Cause he's always got something a little different than me and his insight is, uh, is unreal. And, uh, and he said, you know, I, I, I love thoughtful, introspective people. And he is one of those. So like I said, I don't know if you guys are going to like this. I don't know if you're going to turn it off after five minutes. It's a, it is a little bit of a reach, but is based off a theory I had and, I wanted to bounce that idea, that idea with someone. So it's a little politics, a little economics, and a lot of NBA. <laughs> so probably a lot of people aren't going to like this episode, but it's okay, right? You know, some for you, some for me. And uh, brother, we have some great guests next week coming up. We have Tim Williams from Vision of Disorder. I got Miles Kennedy from Alter Bridge coming up. We got John Denai from Anthrax and Shadows Fall, and. Uh, it's exciting stuff. So please check out for his third appearance on the X-Men podcast, my conversation talking about some crazy stuff with Nelson Blake. Mr. Nelson Blake, you're, you're back on the show for, is this the third time? I believe it's the third time. It's the third time. Okay. Well, it's, it's, it's been too long, which means, 
both of us have probably been way too busy. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's uh, great to hear your voice. Great to uh, see your face. So we're on on a, here to talk about a very, I guess, complex and I and and I would I guess you can call it a, a metaphor to a certain mm -hmm. degree, or at least from my perspective, um, a metaphorical theory about the relation between how I think a lot of us perceive the way our economic system works and the kind of uh, politics around that. Uh, things were kind of almost, uh, I guess, tribalistically attached to about the ways we kind of see the world um, and then how that relates to sports. Because in my opinion, these uh, sports teams and these sports leagues are in a sense kind of like these little incubators for testing economic theories or it and, our, and, and the economic theories being uh, it's sports are zero sum, right? With the exception of, you know, soccer and hockey, there's winners and losers. Mm -hmm. so, so, and the main idea is that billionaires own, own all these teams and were able to make their money through a system that kind of benefits them when there's the least amount of rules. But when they're in a situation where they're trying to win, they want a lot of rules and regulations to keep it fair so that everyone has a chance. <laughs> so that's my general theory. And I, and I brought you on because I thought you would have some thoughts about it. And a lot of this, the reason why it's kind of prescient to me right now is because right now there's a debate in this country about the, the minimum wage being raised to like uh, $15. So let's, let's kind of start there, um, just about the kind of big picture element of, of this metaphorical theory. Uh, do you have any kind of immediate thoughts? On the $15 minimum wage part? Want to start or there? just the whole premise of what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, I think the premise that you're talking about speaks to a lot of things, and I'm sure we'll get to uh, a fraction of it, but hopefully we can make good with that fraction. Um, but it really speaks to, as the internet era has come along, a lot of us have learned a lot more about the language of economic literacy. And I think this is what's causing a lot of the uh, conflict because this is being introduced to the larger public in certain ways. Sometimes it's a metaphor, like you said. I think the thing that's um, key with the NBA thing is the first thing you hear out of people's mouths from certain sides is, well, they signed the collective bargaining agreement, right? And this sets up the collective bargaining agreement as this ironclad stone tablet of rules that we all agreed upon so this, is, this would function properly. But that's not necessarily true. This is a set of rules, you know, strong-armed by the people in power to satisfy both sides to a degree, but knowing that the, less, the least satisfied side is not going to be the billionaire owners of the corporations. And so what you get from the NBA players in certain, well, or any player from anything really, is when they, what they've learned is the power of insurrection, right? So you look at a guy like uh, James Harden, he didn't want to be where he was. And he says behind closed doors, 
all right, our deal is off. Get me out of here. And by our deal, by the way, people think, well, he's getting paid a gajillion dollars. So he should just do what he's told when no, his, his career is only going to last roughly 20 years of well, activity. If you're, that's at the, you know, and I'm, ca- I'm counting everything. It's like the Carl Malone's. <laughs> the dribble off endorsements and all of that stuff too. Yeah. Right. That's what I said. 20 years or less. We can all agree on that. Right. Yeah. And so he's like, no, I have to maximize the value of my commodity basically by any means necessary. And unfortunately for you, Mr. Billionaire, the NBA is a league built off of stars. And while I'm the star, I, I have more power than you in the process of playing and winning basketball games. You can't neutralize my celebrity or my ability. So I can leverage those things to force you to do something that you don't want to do. And it's funny because the pearl clutching that happens instinctively to what we would say protect the billionaires, I think what it really is, is people instinctively want to protect structure. And what that belies to me is, and this is where it gets very partisan, what is your perspective on structure? Which structure? How does that structure apply to you? And when does this faith in structure show up? And when does this rebelling against structure show up? And I think that is separate from something like the functional application of the minimum wage, right? Because you have the theoretic idea of the minimum wage, which is extremely sound from a certain perspective, in terms of what you mostly hear from the left, which is back in 1950, you could work at a gas station and own a house. The dad could work at the car factory. That was his job. He went, moved stuff along on the conveyor belt, came home, washed his hands, wife, kids, dog, car, and he was good to go. You do that same job today and you have like two roommates, right? And so if you're lucky, right? So you look at people working at Starbucks and you go, oh, well, you're basically a waiter. Get, you're supposed to get a real job or something like that eventually. And it's like, not that wasn't the case back in. You watch any TV show from back in the day, and you know it was just the dude behind the diner with a little hat. That was his job. He didn't like have to graduate to be in finance. He was able to do an honest day's work five days a week and provide for himself. And the basic theory that in a first world country like ours, where in certain respects, we have so many resources. There's no way that a person should make an honest living and not make an honest wage. And so from that perspective, the $15 uh, minimum wage is a nice idea and something that we should figure out to, you know, to get the ideal of it to work. On the flip side, the truth of the matter is, is that 15 bucks for many corporations is a threshold where it makes workers expendable because of the cost of labor. And this happens all of the time in every industry, right? If you price yourself out of how much money you actually generate compared to how much I can get that same service from someone else, you just push yourself into obsolescence. So the the $15 minimum wage worker, let's just face it, and this kind of goes to the idea of regulation and all these other things, all of this stuff about immigration is about cheap labor coming yeah. over here. Yeah. And then the same thing about our global economy is cheap labor being in other places. Why would I ever pay an American to box an item when I can have that item boxed overseas and then sent to me yeah. for a well, let's, well, I think we're going down 
a little bit of rabbit hole because I think we can we can really just talk for an hour and a half just about the minimum wage and and whether we think it should be what it is, fifteen dollars, what, what what have you. And I think we'd probably see eye to eye to that in a lot of ways. But you kind of almost glazed over something that's at the heart of what this discussion is supposed to be. So you you said you talked about right at the beginning. You said the CBA. So that stands for collective bargaining agreement, and it speaks to the idea that all of these sports leagues have unions and union uh, people who are in union unions in, in this country. And also, so union participation and also uh, how people view unions positively or negatively has decreased substantially in the last 40 years. Okay. Uh, and by the way, just, just to kind of put a caveat here, we're using the NBA as a basis, essentially, because it's the, the, the sport we are the most uh, knowledgeable about. But I think a lot of the conversations we're having, you could use for almost any sport because they're pretty similar. Uh, there is a hard salary cap in football and the NHL. There is a there's no salary cap in in the Major League Baseball, but there is uh, a luxury tax. And in the NBA, you have a soft cap. And a, and a luxury tax. So we're, we're kind of focusing on there, but a lot of stuff we're talking about could be kind of used for almost uh, any sport. But, uh, but so unions are pervasive and the thing that's interesting about it. So you have the players in all of these sports, all right, by most standards are considered to be rich people, right? But the owners are wealthy people, right? So it turns out when... <laughs> Rich people want to get together. And by the way, same thing. There's an actor's union. There's a director's guild. There's a writer's union. Like all of these kind of privileged areas where people tend to do well. We're talking about sports and entertainment. Unions are the norm. So for, and these are areas where people do generally very well, that that collective bargaining agreement is exactly that. It is saying, we have a unique skill, an elite skill, and you basically, we can't be replaced. So you have to honor our ability to kind of ask for things that benefit us, benefit uh, older players, right? Like it's like a lot, it's a lot of the things they ask for is like, hey, we gotta make sure we get healthcare for X players. We gotta make sure we get pensions for X players. We gotta, all these, 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 these kinds of things. And doc, um, before you move on, let's sure. just harp on that note for a quick second, because I think it's an important one. Well, we see a lot of times in the NBA, not all the time, but a lot of times, and this also happens in other sports as well, is exactly what you said, and it's something we should take note of. There are privileged workers whose value is so high and so hard to replace that they're not just negotiating for themselves, they're negotiating for the replaceable workers, Yeah. right? So in the NBA, there's a lot less replaceable workers just because virtually every, every player on a starting lineup on an NBA team is secure financially, pretty much. There are a few outliers, but for the most part, these are people who have made millions, plural, of dollars and stand to make more, especially when you start including veterans who might be starting who've been paid in the past and rookies who might be starting who are paid off of their rookie deal. And then you have people who are like lifetime starters and then the actual stars all those guys are paid. And then the same thing on down to the sixth and seventh man. So really they're protecting, like you said, um, future stars and past stars and past players and future players more towards the end of the bench. 
Uh, and I'll cite one example when LeBron James said, no more pay cuts for me, right? Like he took a pay cut to play in Miami to get rings and he was upfront about it. He's like, no, no, it's not for me. Like I can make this money from Nike easily. This couple of million here or there means nothing to me. But if I take a pay cut, then it allows them to shortchange every superstar behind me because I'm the biggest superstar. So I can't take a pay cut. Well, anymore. people could say, hey, LeBron James took a pay cut. Why can't right. you? Same, right. and, and the same thing happened with Kobe at the end of his career, where he was essentially overpaid for the last two or three years. But it was more in line saying, well, Kobe gets that not because he's worth that much money right now on the court, but it's like he's supposed to get that because he's supposed to get that. I'm Kobe Bryant. I'm not taking a pay cut. And that's right. pretty much it. So in, in football, it's much more rant, it's much more uh, widespread, the people who are on the fringe. Every football player is not rich. Uh, if you're a backup guy on the offensive line, I mean, some of those guys are half step off of a UPS yeah. truck. Non, I mean, non-guaranteed contracts. It can I, be brutal. Yeah, the, probably the highest uh, injury rate that is the shortest careers. I mean, football is tough. And there's so many players you're kind of seen as – expendable probably in, in some ways which is i'd say what's kind of fascinating is you ever watch any of those uh with that it was like hbo show hard knocks i think it's called yeah. and it's the you know the documentary series about the, the nfl teams and they like yell at these dudes like mm -hmm. they're in the army but you would never see that in the nba right because it's like the players have power and they're more like they understand it's like once you get out of college, it's like you, you ain't yelling at players. A you know, player will, will choke you out like spree. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yo, I'm a grown ass man. You better get the fuck out of my face. But in right. the NFL, the coaches have way more power. So they'll get in someone's face and kind of like, I mean, and I guess it's just the culture, the culture is different in football. Well, and the team structure is different. Too. Yeah, but when you have what 50 people on a team. Yeah. So like, by, by it's like you might forget someone's name. What's your name? Um, <laughs> outside no. of the quarterback everybody has a much smaller fraction of effect on a team yeah. than even a six man on the nba right like jordan clarkson has more effect on his yeah. team than the starting wide receiver of the jets it's like an ant colony <laughs> <laughs> but i and i bring that up because you brought up unions and how our views can be skewed but by bringing up both the nba and the nfl we can see not just unions but also the functionality of when you have a union in place, the need for the workers at the top of the pyramid to look out for the workers at the bottom. Otherwise, that expendability can quickly turn into abuse. Yeah, well, listen, I, I have very mixed thoughts on unions because I think you look historically, you can see all the times when unions with unfettered power have mm -hmm. done really shitty things and you know gotten people overpaid or didn't deserve it or took advantage of situations or been really corrupt right you know at least mm -hmm. you know how much with the teamsters how much the mafia was involved with a lot of stuff like that or we see currently how much issues people have with police unions or even currently right now there's a lot of debate about teachers unions and how much power they have so i i i think the idea of like it's either 100 a good or bad thing is you know, I definitely lean more the idea of unions because mm -hmm. I think if you don't, if you have no unions, then what do people kind of do? You're kind of screwed. Well, the regulation is all over the place. Yeah. So it's, it's this the thing word is like, history. 
Well, it's like, I like the idea of unions, but then it's kind of like that idea, like absolute power kind of corrupts. Absolutely. Corrupts absolutely. You know, I totally I, agree. I had the kid- used history is the word yeah. because unions aren't like, you know, tech firms where it's like, we need to invent a thing and get it working properly. Unions are a history of internal politics manifested and masquerading as something to help workers. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It's a case by case. But the history part of it is largely true in many, many cases. And when that history happens, and like you said, you have that corruption, it's almost like the Supreme Court, right? Like a Supreme Court judge is there for so long that if they have a problem, it's like our problem basically forever. Right. And apparently those people live the longest out of any human. And then you have people who can't be. Well, that tells you a little bit about, I think, when you have something to live for, those people yeah. tend, tend to live. But, <laughs> live but it's, this, it's this idea that if you make someone kind of unfireable, what mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that is not really uh, a great incentive to get good outcomes in your organization, no matter no matter what it is. Um but anyway, let's not, but I guess the idea is if unions are good enough for LeBron James and Tom Brady and whoever whoever the most popular <laughs> <laughs> Mike Trout, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, then are they good enough for normal people? Should there be more, you know, is that is that what that says? Is that what you know people of a certain skill set are like, no, we we gotta go in and demand what we want. Well, it's interesting you ask that because uh, I'm a comic book penciler by trade. I do other work, but that's you know been my main gig for a while. And there's no union there. And they're constantly talking about unionizing for some of the same talking points you hear. Uh, wages haven't changed numbers since like 1940. Um, so, you know, it's still a for base entry, like getting in. It's, it's uh, officially something like 120 bucks per page, but indie companies get away with paying people stuff like 50 bucks per page and paying people overseas like 40 bucks per page. And if you've ever drawn a comic book page, you know, there's just no way you can live off of that. So pencilers have been talking about unionizing for a while and all the ways in which it would help. And it's extremely skilled labor. Um, there, there are many, many artists in the world, but not many who can draw a competent comic book. And it's I just very, It's competent. very merit- meritocratic in a you way. It's similar and yeah, like there's only yeah, well, yeah. Well, it's like, but I think like all arts, right? Like everyone starts doing something for free, right? You do it for fun, Mm -hmm. whether you're like me, a guitar player, you know, you, um, an artist or a basketball player, where you love, you do it for fun, and then it's this idea of wait a second, I can get paid for something I do for fun. Then there's more of a you get a more uh, supply right? There's a lot of people out there who would love that job. Um, so those infrastructures take advantage of that. So they're like, oh, this person, right. they kill for a record deal. So I'm going to give them the shittiest record deal possible because everyone wants a record deal. Or, you know, I don't know the demand in, in terms of the comic book world, like how many people, if you weren't there, are there 10 people there to fill your job or not really? Is there, is there or is it a like the NBA, there's only a handful of people that can really do that job. It's closer to the NBA. It's almost like this, right? Like music is overall subjective, but the more focused you get on specific genres, the less subjective it becomes because it becomes about 
the amount of people on the planet Earth who can actually do this gets smaller and smaller, yeah. right? So if, for instance, I saw you got a nice Dean guitar the other day, right? Extraordinarily jealous. That was beautiful. It is beautiful. It's right there. And if, you, if somebody had a Pantera cover band, now, listen, we know there are a lot of amazing guitarists in the world, but to really closely resemble Dimebag's style is not that many people that can convincingly do it. Yeah. A lot of technical musicians out there, but his style is just in that weird blend. And same thing if somebody was doing like a dream theater cover band. And so it's really about how high the quality bar is pitched up, how specific that quality bar is. And that's important because this is when you start to see corporations lowering the quality bar so that they can get away with paying less skilled laborers, laborers so that labor becomes less expensive. You know what I mean? If everyone demanded that t-shirts be of a certain quality, right? Then they would have to hire people who could make t-shirts of that quality. And the pool is smaller and increasingly more expensive because it's more skilled. But if you can convince everyone to wear the most uncomfortable, scratchiest, starchiest t-shirts around, well, shoot, I can get a bunch of kids in Indonesia to do that for a penny a shirt. Right. But that is the free market, though. It, you, the consumer gets to decide, like me, someone who's a little bit more of a discernible uh, consumer, when you, know, you make start making enough money, like I'm not going to wear the the brick Gildan <laughs> shirt and I'm going to get the, the nicer quality. So that's that. And that's where the free market, I think, uh, works for 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 consumers. And you, you can say, hey, I'm, I want the nice shirt and we have a price range. And if you're someone who doesn't much money and. So there's an option for you as well. And I think those are elements where the free market And this does work. circles back around to the NBA, which is what one of the, what the players have been complaining about. We saw this recently with Draymond Green. He was talking about uh, Andre Drummond being sent to the back room. And it wasn't just about the respect of it. He was saying, you are manipulating what the market views him as. You are abusing your power to manipulate him because if he was on the floor playing, he would produce objectively, you know, a 16 points and 16 rebounds. And that has a market value. But when you treat him like he can't play and you disrespect him like he can't play, you can cost him millions of dollars. And we have no regulation in place for you controlling yeah, but how the free market views something. No, but and here's, that's when, but here's yeah, the thing, here's what I'm saying. These sports leagues are their own bubbles, economic mm -hmm. bubbles. And they, what I'm saying is they are not free markets. They are not. It is the illusion of free market, right? right. Like, like as someone, someone pointed this out and I was like, it was like the most, the best point. The players don't work for the teams. They work for the league. Mm -hmm. Right. True. So that's yeah, why, sure. so that's why there's, that's why it's kind of, it's legal quote unquote to be traded. Right. It's that, well, you don't work for the Knicks. You work for the NBA, so you kind of you go where we kind of tell you to go, and that's part of the deal. So they're not really free markets, and we know that because there are concepts like maximum salaries, right? And this is and it's something I've I've always thought about. You know, we've talked about because there's uh, there's minimum salaries in the NBA based on there's minimum and maximums based on how many years you've been in the league. Uh, but the minimum salary in the NBA for a rookie is $900,000. The highest paid player in the NBA currently is Steph Curry at $43 million. And a lot of that is like 
there's all these caveats on how you can, mm-hmm. how much money you can make depending on how, what year you, you are and all these different things, you know, like if you've made uh, all NBA team, all this kind of weird stuff. Anyway, the super max, I think it's called. Um, and the average salary is $7 million. So NBA players kind of by far are the average salary are the best paid players mm-hmm. in, 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 in pro sports. Um, but I do believe there are some individual sports stars that are higher paid be that in yeah, some baseball gets or, really over or the top. soccer. Yeah. Yeah. Soccer. Really some, of, some, some, of, some, of, some of those guys. But the question is, okay, if within this, like I said, all these billionaires, right, that are essentially and that really the key here, and, and like I said, this is this is the metaphor I'm making, is that what they want is competitive balance, right? This idea that a team in Oklahoma City has just as much chance of winning a championship as a team in New York or Los Angeles. Uh, And this has kind of been proven out across the board with the exception maybe of football, that there is no such thing as parity. That even if you skew all the rules, that it tends to kind of veer in certain directions. And whether that's, and, and a lot of it, and it's not because New York has more money to spend because in these, these leagues, they don't, they don't have more money to spend than, than some other things. So what does it tell you? It means that teams are winning for other reasons that people are going to LA maybe because it's fucking LA and not because (laughs) they're making, it's just like people like living in LA. Maybe that's what it is, or they get more shine or they don't want to live in Cleveland because they don't like Cleveland. And so no matter how much you make it an even playing field, it's not going to make, players want to go to places that just in the same way like if they weren't even in sports like where do people tend to live where do they tend to move it's like there are some places that are more popular less popular that's what Mm -hmm. it is what it is um i I think like most things the claim for wanting parity is a very it's a sale right it's not that they don't want parity but they're using that as language that's agreeable over it there if a if a small market owner owns a team and can't get a superstar that team has no value and he'll lose money and he doesn't want to be a part of the league anymore which is different than competitive parity because competitive parity means you have a chance to win like to at least hope to win the championship and almost and doc you're a big nba fan almost any year there are rarely more than seven teams, and that's a high number. Usually, it's something like four. Yeah, there's like, rarely like three more. Or four and a couple, like maybe you couple can see of the wind blowing. I doubt right. it, but maybe, right? Yeah. So it's rarely more than seven out of the thirty teams that could thirty-two teams that could possibly win this, right? So parity is not what they're looking for. It's really that Giannis stays in Milwaukee. Nobody cares if Giannis ever wins a championship. Because and you again, don't you don't think the Milwaukee Bucks don't care that they win a championship? The league doesn't care. Every individual team would like to win a championship. They're competitive people, but the policy that the CBA is created on doesn't care if Milwaukee gets a championship. The other teams don't think it'll be good for the NBA if Milwaukee gets a championship. So what you're saying is it's actually not about winning. It's that if Giannis stays in Milwaukee, that franchise has is a more valuable franchise yeah there and you have these stars 
more spread out so that so so even though that can impact winning it's more about the economics and it's more about making sure that our 10 best players aren't in three places absolutely and doc again this is i can utilize your experience here so you're a well-traveled guy right because of music stuff you've been to cities like a phoenix or a milwaukee when there's no sports happening and it's completely different than when that team is in the playoffs and playing. It's like... Actually, listen, I think it really depends. I think what I've learned with that situation is there are just certain towns yeah. that are particularly uh, fashioned and connected to a particular team, right? So if you're right, right. in Pittsburgh during football season, it's like a vibe that is, yeah. takes takes over the city. When I was in Chicago, when they were in the playoffs with their hockey team the blackhawks dude mm-hmm. every bar it's it crazy was, i was, was there at the same time it was, it was nuts if you're in montreal during hockey season it's insane so i really think it depends on what town and what it is i mean i remember you know i i'd be in certain places and there'd be an nba team and you'd be in that town and no one really cared you know so it really just and, depends on the town and like how they connect with a particular team and keep that in mind right so taking that when the, the thing about getting into the playoffs for certain cities, it is a monumental jump in economy for everyone in the city. Yeah. I think about Phoenix in particular. I went to a, I had a comic book convention around there and I was just surprised at how the city could go completely dead, like lights out dead when nothing was going on. But when the Suns were in the playoffs, <clears throat> it was like a city city. Right. Yeah. And this is, and we we know the the like the high number that I've seen is that LeBron James added five hundred million dollars. Oh yeah, you know Easy. a season to the economy of Cleveland, like literally just being there. It was like all of the store owners, the restaurant guy, like everything was just up, 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 way up. Dude, how much how much value did he add to the Lakers franchise, which is already this the second most valuable franchise in the in the league? Just him being there, they could probably sell the team for two billion more dollars. Right. And no. for smaller teams, the jump is from not profitable to really profitable. So Russell well, Westbrook being no, in no, Oakland, no, no, hold on. Right. There's no teams in the, teams in the NBA are losing money. There have been actually recently a lot of owners uh, just a couple of years ago. A lot of owners were talking about losing money on okay, NBA teams. I'm, I'm sorry. It's bullshit. Here's why I'll tell you that. Because all these motherfuckers. Sorry for the language. <laughs> bought their teams for X money. Oh and yeah, when, it, of when course, it's time to sell the team, they will sell them for double, triple. Yeah. So yes, maybe in a given year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. Actual what came in and what went out, they might lose money. But the truth is, they are these franchises are cash machines, and not just because those particular franchises are doing so great. It's that there are these hedge fund bajillionaires. And these Saudi princes are just <laughs> waiting for one of these things to become available so that they can move it to Vegas, so that they can move it to Seattle. So it, I'm sorry. No, no one's really. Well, no, in, I, in the I, long I don't term, term, No one's yeah. losing money owning one. But that's, but that's what they, 
No, but that's what they fight for, though. Yeah, at least basketball. Like, I don't know the other leagues. Yeah, but that right there is what the, is enough for them to fight for. Like you said, the 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 whole thing where you could say to them, they could say to you, "Hey, I own um, the Charlotte Hornets, and I haven't been making money on a year by year basis." And you could say, "Dude, when you bought that franchise, it was this much, and if you were to sell it today, it was that much. You're full of it." But that's not the terms they're thinking about. They're fighting for if we draft Lamelo Ball, now we're making. Like on TV money, we're making this. At the door, we're making that. On merch, we're making this. You know what I'm saying? Like we've got all these deals now coming through because of what this one kid is bringing in. And so when they make the CBA, they're they're fighting for everyone's right to attain that and hold on to that. They don't even think in terms of like actually personally losing money. Okay, so so we're we're talking about this right now in in. NBA terms, mm-hmm. but let's make the metaphor. So, like, the point is, does it actually mean? Uh, are we kind of saying? Do, do these situations signify that what we actually need? If we want everyone in the real economy to compete, we need more regulations. We need more. So there's literal wealth redistribution in. The NBA and the way this works is they have a thing called the luxury tax, right? Mm-hmm. And all the teams that go over the salary cap and pay into the luxury tax, that money gets divided up and sent back to the teams who are not over the luxury tax. Okay, that is literal wealth di- re- redistribution. There are other there is uh there are profit sharing. Right. So like when other teams do have these, I think there are certain things that aren't shared, like TV deals and things like that aren't aren't shared. But there is profit sharing across the board that the idea that like when someone wins, kind of everyone wins. Right. But these are billionaires that own these teams that made the league regulated like this so that everyone can win. But if someone advocates for those same things in the real economy, you're called a socialist you're called someone who's playing uh um you know um class you're a class warrior right um and the and truth be told if you go back to the financial crisis of 2008 that's when you kind of had this explosion of moves to to socialism on the left the the whole bernie sanders wing of the party that started in 2008 where people kind of looked around Young people, millennials go, you know what? I'm getting the short end of the deal. I, I have a college degree with a loan I can't pay off. I'm working at Starbucks, even though I got a bachelor's degree and I can't get health care. I can't, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I can't, you know, my, my apartment's $2,000 for a studio. And this seems like the situation isn't working. Um, so what I'm saying is like, do these leagues, these little incubators of economic policy, do they signify that, yes, we should have a more socialized environment if we want everyone to have a chance to compete? I would say on the surface, not necessarily. Hear me out. So the reason the NBA is so easy to regulate is because there's a level of transparency. And as you talked about earlier, there's a zero sum factor that the NBA operates on, that is, it's the ultimate judge and jury, right? Like if no one wants to watch your team play, 
and your team doesn't win, the league has to step in because you are now the weak chain in the link. You are a virus. And if you spread, we have a bad situation in the league. We cannot have too many teams that are doing this, right? So you can't tanking? go. Well, not just tanking, but just overall not being interesting, not ruining a result. Because think about it. Let's say you're a bad team. Well, when the other teams who are middle-of-the-road teams play against you, now the ratings really dip. If you have two middle-of-the-road teams that are, like, solid and interesting, like, for instance, right now, if you have the Knicks versus who's a good middle-of-the-road team, say Indiana, right? Not only are all of the Knicks fans and Indiana fans going to watch it, but anybody who's interested in an Eastern Conference playoff race is going to watch it. But if you have the Wizards versus the Sacramento Kings – only Westbrook Beal fans and like De'Aaron Fox fans are going to watch it. I but that, but that's where I would. I think your your premise is a little false because I think you're actually it's it's in today's current market, even the bad teams, quote well, unquote, have have, yeah, have good that players. That proves my point. We have the most talent ever. They've, they've gotten to that point, right? That's this is what they work for. They've been successful, right? So using today's teams is not a great example because you don't have like. The like the old Sixers before Ben Simmons and Embiid got there, where it's just like, what is going on? Who's even on this team? What's happening? You don't really have that situation because even the Wizards, who were like the worst team in the world just a few weeks ago, have Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. And my point, my point is not the success of you know how bad the teams are and all this other stuff. It's that their model. You can see why it's in their interest to have every team have a redeemable factor, have every team be profitable. They have an interest in it because the hardcore result is whether people watch and people buy your stuff. But don't we have an interest in making normal people be viable? Because if, if I'm making sure someone isn't failing at life, then we have less homeless people. Then we have less people going on welfare. Then we have less people. Alt- altruistically, yes. But I think this is why we have this clash and this rebellion, because when it comes to the financial sector, what people found out was that we don't work off of a straight meritocracy, that we have this faith-based economy that is completely unregulated and working in the shadows by rules that no one understands. And that you guys can pull the rug out from everyone and then come back and ask for a trillion dollar bailout for it without us knowing what or why or how. Like the average person didn't increase or decrease their value. It was different when we were a manufacturing country and you could say, well, Japan's cars are better than our our cars. So if we don't make a whole bunch of better cars, we're gonna be broke. And then everybody points their innovation towards manufacturing. That's an oversimplification. But but, but that to to degree, yes, to degree, no, because we are underskilled, right? Like that, that was the oh, whole yeah. learn to code meme, right? Yeah, yeah. It was this idea around that you have to constantly be updating your skill set. You know, when uh, some politicians would go to West Virginia, for example, and be like, listen, you got to learn new skills outside of just being in the mine because the coal is not going to be here forever. And instead of those people taking that, they, they just became offended. And they're like, how dare you? You know, uh, so, and there's like elements, you know, when you look at college where, what do people do? They go into liberal arts and they go into journalism and they go into all these fields. But the truth is, where do they need people? They need people in the sciences. They need people in engineering. There's plenty of jobs. If you actually 
learned the the things, the skills that are valued in the marketplace, but people aren't doing that because we're all taught when we're in high school and like our parents are like, you can do whatever you want. And you should, you know, we're taught, we're all taught to be these like lofty kind of things. And everyone, you know, especially, you know, of a certain kind of hipster class, everyone kind of think thinks they're going to be some cool, they have a cool job, right? I don't think being an engineer is considered a cool job or being doing computer coding, but they're good jobs and they're high, high skill, high labor. So I think the reason why we utilize all this labor, high skilled, high education labor out of places like Asia is because they have the education, they have the skill set. So I do think there is a skill deficit. Well, I think I totally agree with everything you just said. I just don't think that that is the concern of the shadowy financial sector. Of course not. And that's my, but the thing is, the owners, all of the owners care if one NBA team is just like miserable because I don't want your players. I don't want to trade with you. I hate playing games against you. My players dog it when they go to your city. Like this sucks for everybody. You're a drain, not a fountain when it comes to that. Overall. Get, getting that easy W. Everyone, <laughs> you know, everyone's kind of lo- feeling that. good. But no, but I, I but would you say- know what I'm saying? Like the owners have an actual vested interest in every cell in the body of the. Well, league. they want the overall product to be consistent, and everyone kind of kind exactly. of kind of benefits. And I think in that regard, since the process Sixers, that is almost to some degree di- disappeared. There are, are franchises like, pe- you know, the Suns. I remember a couple of years ago, people were just like, what is wrong with this franchise? Why can't they get it together? As early, you know, as early as six months ago, the Knicks are the worst place to go. Why would right. anyone want to come here? Now they're, now they're playing well. So I think it does shift the, you brought up the Sacramento Kings and that's the longest drought uh, that any team has had since being to the playoffs and, I'd say 90% of that is, that is self-inflicted. Yeah. Um, and and I also think that's also a franchise where I know that those people want that when, when I'm there, but if, you know, Kevin Johnson didn't step in and do all that shit, they'd probably be in Seattle and probably have a better, <laughs> have, have, a, have, a, have a better shop. We could spend all day talking about the, the Kings, even though they have a lot of talent and they're actually a pretty fun team. But the team I want to talk about is this idea. Again, I'm making another comparison another another metaphor this idea around and this is across almost all sports that we essentially reward the worst teams the, the teams that do the worst jobs get rewarded with high draft picks mm-hmm. right and this is essentially what this is socialism a well right. well it's a welfare system yeah, yeah that and this is so i i know i've been a lot of my critique has probably been a little more from the left because you know i lean a little more that way and and I feel like some of this data that we look at from sports teams kind of bear out in that way, but this kind of supports the idea. So if you look at the Minnesota Timberwolves who have had four number one picks, whether through their drafting or actually acquiring in like the last 10 years, they had um, Wiggins, Anthony, uh, what's his name? The guy that, that Edwards, Anthony Edwards, the new one, but the other Anthony, uh, wait, oh, so wait, Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns, Carl Anthony Towns, and then the uh, why I'm forgetting his name, he was a complete bust. And they, they didn't draft Wiggins, they no, no, they did, they got the other, the other number one pick. But the point is, they had few number one picks, they had and like, high they, picks like Jared Culver, who didn't, turn yeah, that. and now they're they're the, they have the worst record in the league, and they just had the number one pick, right? Mm-hmm. 
And now they're going to be in line. Basically, if they stay where they're at, they're going to be a top three again. And and then you look at teams like like the Kings, right? How many top five picks have they gotten in the past fifteen years? It's 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 insane. So it's this idea. Is this kind of an idea that the welfare system, in some in some regards, is you know can fail or will fail based on how we incentivize people who are kind of at the lower rung of maybe effort or the idea that, you know, this is a big Republican talking point or conservative talking point is the idea that when you give people too much and you disincentivize them from working, you're actually hurting them. Right. Cause you're, you're like, um, you know, those at the silent bigotry of low expectations, like this Mm -hmm. idea that Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of the, the nanny state, all this kind of stuff. Like, is this kind of reflective of, Maybe like I said, because it feels almost like a little bit of a science experiment. Like you're, yeah. you're able to look so, like, okay, what happens when you just give the people that perform the worst, the most shit? So I would say first and foremost, I don't entirely disagree. And like a lot of talking points from either side, there's truth to it, but it's much more nuanced yeah. than the statement, right? So you, I think Minnesota is a great example because they've gotten a lot of draft picks and have had no, aside from the fact they're, that they're in a cold city and aren't going to get any real free agents, they've had no like impediments to improvement outside of their own incompetence, right? I mean, they, they wasted Kevin Garnett for most of his career, right? Love, now Carl Anthony, Carl Anthony Towns. I mean, there's a bit of a <laughs> He's pattern. He's getting the same treatment. People are like, <laughs> Kevin Garnett's calling him every week. Hey, man, I'm, I'm warning you, yeah. it doesn't get better. And then so, they had Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Buckets there, and... He was like, he, he won. He won too much for them to tolerate. Right. <laughs> he was he was almost like a reverse virus. Right. He was too healthy for their sick body uh, and told them <laughs> as much and it immediately leaves and go to the finals. Shame. Shame. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> so, so what it shows you is there is no substitute for skill. And, and when I say skill, I don't just mean technical skill. I think we overlook psychological skills and assume them, which is not rational, right? If you take a kid who's dealt with certain amounts of trauma, they're going to have certain issues consistent with that trauma. And sometimes those issues manifest in a lack of faith in personal success. We see it all the time in anxiety and self-sabotage in many, many different facets because they've, well, there are many reasons. I'm not going to break down the reasons, but without healing those things, You can toss money in their direction, but because they don't understand the path to prosperity and then believe in their role in walking that path, that's why it doesn't work. You you might've heard the saying before, you know, there's there's rich people in the world that if you took all of their money today, they'd be rich again in a week, right? Mm, And we know a lot of successful people like that, right? Like if you took all of Dave Grohl's money, Dave Grohl would be fine by June. Sorry, Dave, I mean to take your bank account out here on on the pot, but you get it. So, but it's because Dave has already been completely convinced of his success. Yes, he's also acquired the skills, but if you don't believe that there's some kid just as talented as Dave, you know, who's a complete and no offense, just like loser by the metrics of success, the big difference between him and Dave is that belief, Yeah. right? That understanding. And this is not something that we seek to apply as medicine to our society as a whole, let alone to when you go to impoverished welfare communities. 
Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember the ones you're thinking about right now that feeling that feeling is coming soon from crowd network just search for death of a rock star on your podcast app and subscribe now hello everybody i'm bruce and i'm nolan and this is the corner of gray street podcast as longtime dave matthews band fans we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street. And that's the issue. So you can't fix, I mean, theoretically, if the Timberwolves drafted the next Michael Jordan, that would hide a lot of their incompetence. Unfortunately, they don't get the best player from the draft. They get the chance to choose who the best player is, which is where they have repeatedly failed in that regard yeah, outside of t- out of towns and outside Garnett of towns. and a few people but the thing is that Garnett's a great example because they went to the playoffs got bounced in the first round the the one time they got him a little bit of talent they had a chance to succeed they never actually had to be competent because they were given so much in a historical talent of Kevin Garnett arguably one of the top three four defensive players of all time discounting the rest of his skills which are monumental the rest of his skills and that was enough to cover up it was almost like a record deal right where you, for the next three years the old 90s record deal not today but like for, for three years you see him in fast cars and big houses and gold plated faucets right because it's a lot of money it's a lot of resources but it doesn't but they're going to be broke it just extends how long it'll take 
for them to be broke unless they get that healing, they get that psychological medicine at some point along the way. So assistance is great. But when we say welfare, we think in terms of direct resource, but resources are only useful in the equation of survival. They're not useful in the actual path to prosperity overall, hands down. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about is a couple elements. One, this idea that uh, poverty is, or success are diseases of the mind, right? Like yeah. I said, I've, there's been times I've been poor, right? If you were to look at the numbers, but I never felt, you know, I never had poverty of spirit, yeah. you know? Uh, and that's what kind of carried, carried me through. And the other thing you're kind of talking about is... Um, this kind of the the difference between you know not to you know, not to use an old phrase but you know fit you know give a man a fish feed right. him for a day teach a man a fish feed him for a lifetime it's the idea that just giving people temporary help yeah. mm-hmm. doesn't ultimately help them you have to give them the resources to help themselves or else right. they'll never kind of kind of get out of those those and, those and sometimes when you teach them to fish you have to actually give them a working boat you know, and point them to the right water and give them decent bait. Yeah. You can't do only <laughs> one or only the other, right? You can't say- Stop it all that not nuance. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> Here's a bunch of fish, no lessons on fishing whatsoever. Good luck with that. You better show up with some fish tomorrow. And there's also no, you know, here's a manual on fishing by all of the experts, but you're out in the worst place with the worst equipment uh, that even the greatest fishermen in the world would struggle here, let alone someone trying to learn step one of that journey. So, you know, it's it's not one or the other. It's it's an actual genuine concern for people's internal psychological, spiritual, like you said, success, that poverty of spirit thing. And then what do we need to do to help them working for the system to get them into the league, right? To to have them become team owners and be worthy of owning a team so that we can bring them into a metaphorical collective bargaining agreement with the good faith that they will hold up their end and add to the whole. And that it's not welfare, it's assistance, which shouldn't be. Well, I'm just saying those, I think, unfortunately the the words themselves are loaded, right? That that comes with 30 years of negative reinforcement that mm-hmm. kind of sullies the word. And then, so what do we do? We'll just come up with a euphemism, right? <laughs> Assistance. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's more or less the same idea. Um, so to kind of talk about the opposite, because we, we brushed on this, but I don't think we really got into it. All right, if there's a maximum, so we got minimum wage, we got a minimum salary. And all these, I think it, all except for baseball, I don't think baseball has a maximum salary, right? They don't, right? All right. So no, with I'm not, I'm not baseball, an expert on baseball, but I think they're. I think you can pay them whatever you want. Okay. Should there be a maximum salary in the real world? Because we've had this big revolt from the left, anti-billionaire ideology that people are questioning: Should billionaires even exist? Right. Uh, which I think is an interesting question. Like I, I'm, I don't. My knee-jerk reaction is to be like, well, sure, why not? Uh, but I think what we've seen is we've seen this exponential growth, right? It's not just a billionaire. It's 
people, especially during the pandemic economy, that kind of self-selected for certain industries to do well and certain industries to fail just by de facto of like, well, you happen to be in that industry. So you're going to kick that. If you make web, webcams, you're good to go. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you were smarter than, <laughs> right. the pe- than the people who maybe were in the concert industry, right? Uh, you just happen to do, do, do something else or even, you know, I mean, how many of these multinational corporations that maybe put out films or things like that, that got ruined. They weren't, do you think Disney is dumb? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're bad at business because they, <laughs> none of their movies were able to come out in theaters in, 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 in the past year. Um, and so you had, you know, the Bezos of the world, the, the Elon Musk's who I'm like, how is he the richest person in the world? Do they like sell a hundred times more Teslas? And no one can really explain it to me. And I said, oh, well, the, it's a, you know, it's a, like you said, it's based on confidence and, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, I, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not an economist. I don't know about, uh, I'm definitely not. An economist. So, so, don't, so take what we say with a certain grain, grain of salt, but does that rationale hold in the real world? Should there be a maximum salary? Should we just say, should we cap like, Hey man, this is a little much. My, like you, my gut reaction is no, um, we shouldn't cap people's potential. What we should do is cap the potential damage that those people can do. Right? So how though, because the more money you have, right? So essentially what we do, I think we unfortunately we have two kinds of people when when it comes to the real partisan end of it. You have one group of people who say, you know what, I don't trust billionaires and we got to regulate them. So what we do is we take the power, and put it in the hands of government officials. And you have other people go, well, no, the government is naturally evil, so you got to put the trust in the hands of individuals. But that's kind of just really trusting people. That you're like, I just really hope these billionaires are benevolent. You know, you're just like, yeah. you're kind of just crossing your Because it only takes one evil billionaire to kind of like do <laughs> damage. Right. Un, uh, as, as Dr. Strange says, as, was unto, unto unheard, never heard of, something... Never too on. Oh, I wish I knew that quote. I can't Shame on the damn line. That quote. No, so, oh, hither, hither to unheard. Anyway, I fucking I ruined it. There you go. <laughs> My, the quote factory is closed. Pod, definitely let us know. Let us know. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the quote factory is closed. That's good. So um, it's not that there's no danger to it. The problem with capitalism is the lack of compassion in capitalism. Because it's, ba- it's basically the very simple question. If one person is rich enough to buy all the bread, and he buys all the bread and that's legal. And he's just sitting in the basement with rotting bread. And there's a community of hungry people outside of his tower. That's obviously bad. And there is nothing inherently in the system to stop that from happening. Because honestly, the random assortment of intellectual skills that allow you to be successful in business don't exclude a morality. Right. There are some people that because of their amorality, they're extremely efficient. Now, some people are so intelligent that they understand the value of compassion. Let's just cut it real quick. Some would yeah. say that uh, the, the free market actually incentivizes um, lack of compassion, that, that you will, the more the more cutthroat you are, the actual be- usually the better you will do. They call what was that like sociopathy is like a CEO's disease or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think this happens when 
achievement becomes greed, right? And we can't, you just can't really account for greed when you say, if I'm trying to get the most, at some point, I'm hurting people, right? That's going to be some people's equation. I don't think that's necessarily true, but that's the fastest path, right? The, the sh- most straight line path, the most unimaginative path to getting the most is by cutting out what's in your pathway quickly and efficiently, not asking if it's okay on the way up, right? So the system from a resource standpoint has to inherently be sympathetic. And the word for that that we have is called taxes, (laughs) right? Like if the more money you make, the more money you have to passively give back, it inherently self-regulates for you to have a minimum, uh, you know, to have a high floor of damage. Well, not if you're someone who essentially believes, and I think there's a lot of truth to this, the idea that, okay, you tax the billionaires at some really crazy level, but then the question goes, how is that money spent? And that government is inherently inefficient and wastes this but that's execution yeah we're just talking about answering the question of should there philosophically be billionaires yes should there philosophically be completely unregulated billionaires left to their own morality to do whatever they want with tremendous resources and if they hurt people we'll figure it out after the fact that's pretty silly yeah right i listen because we can't have resources stop we're still a community but we're asking the question now but there's a question we're going to have to ask probably in the next 10 to 20 years, which is, should there be trillionaires? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? Like, like so yeah, one yeah. person essentially has more wealth than a multitude of countries. Yeah. But right? the if of it is, well, there's two things. Number one, money is a resource. What you do with the resource is a totally different thing. Right? So... If I say you're a billionaire, but you're not allowed to buy an army, that on a very practical level limits the damage that you can personally do. Because the fact of the matter is, if a billionaire can just spend all of his money on weapons and trained people, and he was a pure psychopath, right? (laughs) They can literally just march and be like, you know what? I think today we're going to take out North Dakota. But that's but but, but this is what I'm saying is that if you're the type of person who says, you know what, we can't give too much power to the government because then the government will domineer our lives and and do all these things. Once individuals and corporations can acquire enough money, essentially they can operate with the same level of power and authority as a government, right? Mm -hmm. Like so, or they can use their money to influence whatever government to essentially get the same outcomes, right? So it's like having a unilateral dictator, uh, and but they, but in a sense they're not tied to any nation, right? These are they're internationally leveraged. They can, hey, I want to make something happen over here. I want to make something happen here, and and like I said, it's it's just a. I, I think it's a very unique problem related to this period in time because. Yeah a lot of this wealth, it really is the pie has grown, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like 
they're, they're making money from things like Facebook ads. Like that's that's new money, right? That that's money did not exist. This is you know they are creating, uh, you know, people are making money off Twitch and shit like that. Like that didn't exist. Like we really are, the pie is expanding, but that expanded pie is going to few and fewer people because instead of, you know, I brought this up on the podcast before, but it, it bears repeating back when GM was the biggest employer in this country, they employed several million people and were worth all this money. But then you have a company like Apple will employ a, a vastly smaller uh, sum of people. Like I'm, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's, you know, in the maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands as opposed to, to millions. And so the way, and the way those structures work is a lot of that, that money obviously goes to shareholders, but it also goes to people at the top who are getting bonuses and getting, and, and, and it's not, that is not to like demonize those people, right? They're not bad because they happen to be in the right field at the time when mm-hmm. uh, things happen. It's not a way of saying they're evil. It's just, these things have a way of self-organizing in ways that it's, are ultimately and this is poor this outcomes go- for the collective. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about being actually genuinely interested in the individual psychological and spiritual prosperity of people. Because the truth of the matter is what you said about Apple's true, right? Like from an employment standpoint, their resources don't get spread around. And there's obviously the big issue of who's making these again? <laughs> right. But without getting but into eventually that, it won't even be people. It'll just be robots right. making them. So so taking that part off the table and saying, okay, we'll just pin that to a wall and investigate later. If you actually look at what an iPad allows you to do for the price that it allows you, if a person has the right training, an iPad is a gateway to multiple careers. Yeah, these are wealth creation tools. Wealth creation tools, right? Yeah. So like literally, like there are many, many, I mean, even musically, right? Like anything, editing, streaming, art, uh, whatever. I mean, it's, I mean, screenwriting, I mean, like, right. It's like, that's why I think computers in a sense, like I remember my computer got stolen in t- mm-hmm. 2012. And it was like, in a way it was like, this is my ability to create. At the time I was writing, right. I was like, I can't yeah. write. I can't record music. It was like, this is my window into everything, right? If you sell stuff on eBay, if you, whatever, if you're a cam girl, I mean, (laughs) whatever, you know, uh, whatever, whatever your hustle is, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's, uh, and I know some people aren't computer people, they're more smart device people. And and you can do a lot of this stuff through obviously your, your devices. But yeah, this technology has created wealth, right? It's democratized a lot of access, right? Like Mm -hmm. access to information. This is why places like China are so problematic because they've siphoned off, right? A lot of the access for people to actually utilize this technology. And of course, we're talking about all the good ways to use technology. There's a million ways it's terrible for us that we're we're currently dealing with. Um, But anyway, I'll go back to your saying. I don't want to... Well, no, the point being is we the idea that we can have all of these systems with no thought to compassion and no thought about people i think that's the fallacy at the heart of a lot of things 
is when people come up with their altruistic ideas, like the minimum wage, $15 minimum wage and welfare, and even, you know, on the right side, pull yourself out by the bootstraps, get government out of the way so people could succeed and stuff like that. We, we're, we're too interconnected. We're too big to think that, especially with the effort that we've put into them, that we're just going to come up with a system that in and of itself takes care of the compassion. And I think it's a responsibility that as individuals and, and collectively, many, many people want to avoid. They want to avoid genuinely just thinking about their neighbor and honestly caring that they're okay. And this is on down from a day to day, leaving the house and being like, hey, let me check in with you. You live near me. How you doing? On up to, I own a big company and I got to let Doris go, but I want to make sure I'm not destroying her life while I do so. So let me put in some things in place so that, you know, she can at least be led back to getting on her feet and leaving here, whether that's severance packages or you know, going to give you references, put you in some contact with some people. You're just not right for us. We got to move forward. We're making things more efficient. We just don't have your place anymore. But the, the idea that you just bring somebody into an office and go, you're over now, get out, security will escort you on the way out. Like those ideas are going to hurt us, right? Like same thing with the million, all of these questions come down to, if we do these questions, if we do these policies and these systems completely devoid of compassion, we're going to get what we get, especially when there's no regulatory device stopping psychopaths from abusing the system. You, you definitely can't have both, a complete lack of compassion and unregulated ambition you know what I mean? Like you can, from a system standpoint, say we need to construct an economic system where the resources can't stop the flow, right? Like, I think that's the concern with the billionaires is are the resources stopping at you? We need to keep this flowing. You can grow your personal bubble pretty big, but let's keep the resources flowing throughout the rest of society. No hoarders. Yeah. Right? Well, I just, listen, I think overall, you know, I'm not an anti-billionaire person. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, when I, you know, and I, I know in this cons conspiratorial environment we're in, it's very much hindering on the idea that there's a small group of people pulling all the strings. You know, I mean, obviously someone like Bill Gates is taking a lot of heat for, I mean, I think it's one of the craziest things. I mean, this guy is probably single-handedly, him and his wife are responsible for saving probably more lives in like mm -hmm. Africa from like anti-malaria uh, stuff they've worked on and things to help with um, infant mortality rates and uh, death rates, things like that. Uh, but somehow it's become this kind of Dr. Evil cartoon figure um, for, for conspiracy theorists. And I think you have someone like Mark Cuban, who is a pretty prominent billionaire that owns the Dallas Mavericks, that seems like the prototype of what you're talking about, right? The, com the compassionate yeah. uh, capitalist, right? Someone who understands the the, the, the privilege that they have of being in that in that space uh, and wants to kind of use the power for good, right? Mm -hmm. And in a sense, to make another metaphor, right? The, the billionaires, in a sense, are almost like de facto superheroes, right? Like, or they have the power of a superhero. And much like, you know, like one of my favorite shows that came out recently was that, that show, The Boys, right? Oh, yeah. Which is Boys, great. Yep. deconstructing and utilizing the superhero mythology as a way to understand who we are, 
right? And so, and it kind of reveals that generally, if you give people that kind of power, they're no, they're not going to be the most benevolent. They're kind of going to be terrible people. And there's, there's one element of it that I think is great, especially in the last season, where this idea of compassion, that that just becomes another thing to market, another thing to, that becomes another product, right? So instead of, hey, we're going to give to this charity or we're going to make it so like, well, that's just part of your PR strategy that you know that people like compassion. So we're going to be McDonald's and we're like, McDonald's cares about Black Lives Matter. No, you don't. You're just, you're just, you just realize that for your business, it's the best to kind of align with this thing that makes you look good. And that, so, so that kind of becomes its own form of disingenuous kind of like rhetoric, right? And, and then we have to kind of suss through that and say, okay, well, what is genuine compassion? What is, you know, like thing, words like, uh, or phrases like um, virtue signaling, mm-hmm. you know, like, are you really, is it, okay, you're saying the right thing, but do you mean it as a comment? And, and that's sometimes not the easiest thing to like figure out, right? And we often, I think f- people get falsely criticized of not being genuine, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't like them. So if such and such apologizes, right? Well, it wasn't a good enough apology, but, <laughs> which is the funniest thing to me. Well, it wasn't a genuine apology. I was like, well, calm down, all right? They, they could have been doing something else a lot of well, the time. Well, I just, <laughs> but it's just, it's just this I, idea that we're all trying to like read each other's minds. Like, well, he's not, no one's, we, like we're all like, no one trusts anyone anymore especially prompt people of prominence except for the one the people that are like we're the most loyal to right so this happens like i've i've been at the the brunt of like famous people on twitter so i've been like quote tweeted by ben shapiro Mm -hmm. i've been quote tweeted by glenn greenwald so i've gotten from right and left i've got i've been quote tweeted by like reggie miller and Mm -hmm. rob parker and you get to see the stand culture right 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 all the people that follow that person are like, they follow their shit like the Bible. Yeah. So if you go against them, then it's like the hive kind of goes, goes after you. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just think this, this idea of compassion, I don't know how we get there because I don't know if people are more compassionate now than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. I think less. I think the, the I would pandemic, say less. The pandemic has proven that to me. Yeah, the, the thing about it is we did not train ourselves for the internet. And, and this is what the thing I love about How could we? <laughs> how could we, right? And, you know, when you do something that is very skill or merit-based, um, like, for instance, guitar, obviously a subjective form, but there's a bar that you have to get over to play certain kinds of music to a certain level of effectiveness. And if you don't, play cleanly enough and up, you know, in sync and are able to be a functioning band member, you're just not going to succeed. You have to be able to get over that bar to match the bar set by everybody else. And same thing with like art or, you know, NBA play, which is directly competitive. You have to reach over a certain bar. And this requires a certain amount of training. There are other things that require training that we just say, yeah, but I'm not going to train that. Right. Like, and this is where and this is going to be, you know, uh, 
hopefully this podcast doesn't blow up and people come after me for this, but something like raising your kids, right? On the one hand, people should be free to raise their children in the way that they best see fit. On the other hand, that is a very important skill to society. And if you're bad at it, we all pay, right? Yeah, so you know, we like, have uh, conflicting ideas here, right? Yeah, exactly. If you train your kid to, you know, shoot my kid, I have a problem with that. And I get no say in the, the process leading up to this, but I'm left with the results. And this is just a skill, you know? It doesn't have to be a necessarily moral situation when you're looking for effectiveness. And I think sometimes we confuse compassion for pure kindness and feelings. I'm not really talking about feelings. I'm talking about- Well, the, well some people call it the, like the bleeding heart. The bleeding heart mentality. liberal, right? The bleeding liberal, yeah. No, I'm talking about if you understand that, as you said earlier, Doc, if everybody else is successful and everybody else is productive, I'm safer, I'm probably well-fed, I have more resources yeah, It's counterintuitive, though. People think that they- they actually think the the world is more zero sum than it is. Right. Like that if someone else gets it, that means I they're taking it away from me. It and and it's but then this is where the real world deviates from sports leagues, right? Like in the NBA, there's every team plays 82 games that can they can either win or lose. And there's some people are gonna win them, some people are gonna lose them. And it's inevitable, right? That someone's gonna lose the games. Someone has to lose the games, yeah. right? Uh but economies are not, there's like that. I would say it's a game of musical chairs where someone has to clean the toilets. Someone has to haul the garbage. Uh, we just lie to people and we just tell everyone, hey, everyone, everyone can be a billionaire or whatever. Everyone, you know, anyone can be in the NBA, right? We just, we, 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 we kind of lie. But the inherent difference between the real economy and sports leagues is the idea of, of abundance that we're actually not prepared for the idea of having a lot of shit for so long human beings just didn't have enough stuff didn't have enough food didn't have enough firewood didn't have enough clothing didn't have enough and just anything so we're not prepared that once we have enough stuff we just we're like we're so afraid of giving it to people that need it that we're like, well, we'll we make these rules where it's like, well, we can't, the restaurant can't give away food to homeless people, or right, we throw like away. That's one of, so that's one of those things that's like crazy, right? In a certain sense, because we throw away virtually every third, city in America. Well, a third of the food. We throw possible. away enough food to feed everyone. Yeah. And so the question is, well, if you gave the food away for free at the end of the day, why instead of going to your restaurant, would I? Not just wait to the end of the day when you're giving it out for free to homeless people. Cry. And it's I like, mean, why Most are you a don't... psychopath? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, seriously, like, why are you crazy? Why are you being crazy right now? You're being crazy. Like, you're saying, I would love to feed the homeless people, except I also want to be a dick and pretend to be homeless to get a free meal. Yeah, but I think a lot of that, though, is, uh, I don't think those are the restaurants policy. I think those are, like, city. And, like, yeah, but I'm, I'm saying, policies. like, you know, again, the idea that the solution that we've come up with is good luck, homeless people, throw the food away. Like, that's where we've wound up. We, and here's the funny, and then why I talk about effectiveness over feelings, right? 
in what, if you were just looking at the use of food, we spend a certain amount of money importing and uh, creating the dishes of food, right? Importing and preparing food. And then you look at how much food we're throwing away. If you were just judging our usefulness that we got out of the time put into the food, you would look at all of that thrown away food and going, this is excess. How can we fix this? It's when you bring all of the other stuff into it that you're like, okay, with throwing food away and people starving. We have to recognize that as a corruption and a failure and figure out a way around it. We should be every day figuring out, hey, how do we figure out this problem of having all this extra food and all the starving people? There's got to be a way around that. Well, I mean, I think, but you can kind of extrapolate that in a lot of different areas, right? We don't have too many homeless people because we don't have enough houses, even though in the places like California, there are housing shortages that that does exist. But nationally, it's not like there are more of there are more vacant homes than there are homeless people. Yeah. Right. It's not because we generally don't have enough housing in the Los Angeles. We have a housing shortage in San Francisco. They have a housing shortage, um, but it's generally not not the. It, not, not, and in Utah, they just put people in those houses. They just said, here's some free housing for you. Well, that's literally the only solution. There's right. there is no other solution. And the problem with that situation is NIMBY, not in my backyard. People right. <laughs> want to get rid of homelessness. They just don't want you to, to put the shelter by their house. And so you get this, this no-win situation. And it's this idea that if you take all of the trouble, the people that are having the most troubles and you put them together, it kind of exacerbates those issues, right? They become dens of drugs or dens of of crime or you know, rape and all these like terrible, terrible ideas, right? They become their own ghettoized kind of. Uh, prisons for a quick second, because I think this is one of those things where I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but in a certain sense, we pretend it's a lot harder than it is because a lot of homeless people and doc, I know you've been on the road and spoken to like that super smart homeless dude that you're like, how, how are you here? Like you could easily be. Not really. I'm a, I'm a, Oh really? (laughs) Yo, and and it's, listen, it's, it's my, my own thing. I'm more like, I'm a keep it moving guy. I'm a, I'm the guy with the iPod <laughs> earbuds in. I don't want to talk to anyone around the street. Oh, okay, like, yeah, yeah. Yo, one time I literally did like a juke move, like, <laughs> like I was in the NFL. Like I, I did a spin for like some, someone was trying to get me to sign a petition. I was like, Mm-mm, you ain't gonna get me. Uh, <laughs> so, that's, that's probably a, that's probably a good self preservation policy. But if you speak to homeless people, you'll yeah. find that many homeless people are not all. But there's enough enough of them that are just people whose problems have gotten the better of them in a way that is solvable. And again, if we were just looking at efficiency and we were to say how many people in our society that could be helping us are helping us versus are not helping us, we would look at some of those people and look for a solution. Now, to your rapists, arrest them. To your drug addicts, that's what uh, you know, rehab and recoveries for. And the resources of rehab and recovery gets combined with policing, combined with education, combined with gang mentality and party mentality and a whole bunch of other stuff. That's why people get into these situations. And you can't just solve a drug problem in a homeless shelter, but you can facilitate the solution from there. But the people who are violent and terrible elements, you can get them out of there and put them where they belong. 
But that chunk of people that are a possible useful resource, why are we just so willing to let that resource go untapped? Well, I think there's a, I think a lot from the political standpoint, so much is informed by ideology, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, I, and unfortunately I feel like a lot of that ideology works in reverse, right? You start with an ideology and then you look for policy that supports what you believe as opposed to like, you know, kind of removing yourself a little bit from ideology and getting into, okay, what works? What does the data suggest? And really, unfortunately, um, politicians are the only ones that really are forced to kind of look at these things in the aggregate. And, you know, situations like with California that has this exploding homeless population where it's this, it's a diffusion of responsibility, right? So if you have a bunch of homeless people in Los Angeles, is that LA city's fault? Is it LA county's fault? Is it the state of California's fault? Or is it the US government's fault, right? It's all the, so everyone gets to say, well, we're not solving this because we don't have enough support from this branch. Uh, and then people like, if you're a, you know, maybe you're a, a right-wing politician in California or nationally, you'll go, look at those liberal policies failing in, California that don't kind of indicate that while there's national policies or national economic uh, trends that have helped lead to that, that span over decades, right? Like this problem. So if you want to sit there and blame Mayor Garcetti or blame Gavin Newsom for homelessness, it's not like they got in office and there was no homeless people. Right. And they course. all showed up, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous. like they were handed a, a shit sandwich and they sprinkled a little shit sprinkles on top of it. Uh, because not because I think they're trying, I think they're trying their best. I just think uh, these are just, they're fucking giant problems and they're really hard. So I think an individual people don't zoom out. They mm -hmm. only really look, I think most people, especially in environments like this, like, I mean, you're dealing with the pandemic, you're dealing with uh, an economic crisis. Everyone's just really trying to survive. And when, and when people get in those stances, they ain't really trying to solve homelessness. They're just trying to get away from it themselves. They're trying not to be homeless or they're not trying to be around those people because it fe seems like a disease, right? Like I'm gonna catch homelessness. I'm gonna catch poverty. I'm gonna catch despair, right? So it's like, I need to not worry about that. So, so that's it, you have politicians on one end who are doing their best, but they're dealing with decades of who knows how it got there and then a lot of people who don't like the problem, but they're not really willing to invest all themselves. And maybe that's not their role. Maybe, and that's why these things, I think, become somewhat impossible. And then you get a giant blame game. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone pointing, pointing the finger. Uh, but I think at the heart of it is, uh, like, th there's this phrase that, in a way, I kind of hate, which is like, the road to hell is paved with good, with good intentions. Good intentions, yeah. Which yeah. is... I get what they mean, but it's kind of a dumb phrase. And the reason why is because you're kind of insinuating the opposite is true, which is that if we had right. really bad intentions, then good shit would happen. Yeah, yeah, we're the, we're the bad intentions in this it's, metaphor. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's incentivizing people to essentially distrust people with good intentions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It just doesn't really make, I just think it sounds, it's just a nice sounding phrase, but if you actually interrogate it, it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. Yeah. Uh, but I, because I think we should, actually have we should all have good intentions and we should want people to have good intentions 
It's just about how do we execute those intentions and that guess what? You can do all the right things and it still might not work. It doesn't mean that your good intentions cause it not to work. Right. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, but people, they don't see it that way. They, you know, so, so that causes, I think a lot of people to be disconnected from some of that stuff. So kind of, we kind of went down a crazy rabbit hole, but a great, uh, a great rabbit hole. Um, but to kind of like sum this, 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 this topic up, uh, and it's kind of something you started about at the beginning, talking about James Harden. Is there an element of the real economy that maybe we should utilize in something like the NBA, which is, should it be more free, right? Like for in individuals, like one element, like I said, because these environments are more social socialistic in their design uh, and do not have as much, it, we say free agency, but how free are they if every time someone actually exercise, exercises their freedom, they're called a traitor, they're called soft, they're called, oh, look at these millennials, they got to, so, uh, <laughs> or if someone like James Harden, who is under contract, but is saying, I don't want to be here can you please trade me or I'm going to make it as difficult as possible, which I actually have no problem with. I'm, I'm of the mind, like, you know what? They can trade you for any reason. Right. Yeah. And I'll say people love the, the fans are, you know, are the most annoying people in my opinion. These, <laughs> they are, they are terrible. Sometimes. These motherfuckers. It's like <laughs> if Kevin Durant leaves, right. Fuck Kevin Durant. I hate that motherfucker. How dare he, right? But let's say Kevin Durant was sucking for the entire year before he left. What would they be doing? Trade that motherfucker. Get him. Right, they, right. These people love you extremely conditionally. He's very conditional. That yeah. you're valuable to them. You are basically just a cog in a wheel to being great. And you are, as long as your physical greatness, your body can elicit the results that add to something that is valuable for them. That is your value. They don't really care about you. They care about your value to them. And that's to me, very dehumanizing, you know, and we saw that with Derek Rose, right? This guy who put that franchise on his back mm -hmm. and put his body on the line and they, and they, they couldn't wait to get him out of there. Yeah. Isaiah Thomas, the five, nine one. Yeah. Well, well that one, I, I, I do think, but that was the franchise. I think the people, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. People to, like, I think there's a little on, curse yeah. there. I think they actually, <laughs> I do. I think they kind of, there was a lot of bad mojo that got put into the ether and they've had, despite so much talent, not really gotten over a certain hump and now we're experiencing some trouble. And, and part of that, I think, is, you know, you know some, some players, I think, even though they got back-to-back -back years, they got Al Horford and uh, mm -hmm. um, Gordon Hayward, I think people feel like, a little bummed out by that whole Isaiah Thomas situation. I do think there's there, there might be some bad mojo for that. Yeah. Go on to your James Harden thing. I no, think but so, so what I'm saying is instead of us looking at the regular economy and look at sports and say, hey, should we draw some lessons from there? Should the sports leagues draw some influence from the real economy and say, hey, maybe like I've heard this uh theory or proposal, which I think is radical, but I'm I'm not totally against it, that we should abolish the draft, that maybe these things are almost like not <laughs> unconstitutional, but whatever kind of like workers' rights, uh, 
idea of being a free human being that there's something kind of like, I don't know, just like. Uh, I'm fine with the draft because the thing is, individual players don't have to understand this, especially when they're in their late teens, early 20s, like a lot of NBA draft picks are, most NBA draft picks are. Um, But the fact of the matter is that they do work for the league, not for the team. And let's face it, if every rookie could just choose where they would go, then it would just be New York, LA, Miami, whatever, right? But no, here's why I wouldn't though, because there's only so many roster spots on those well, teams. I don't think it would, I don't think it'd be quite as much as as you think. And if you have a salary cap involved, then no, they couldn't sign everyone. It, it only takes one man. It only took one Tim Duncan to turn the Spurs into a dynasty. It only took one Magic Johnson when they had the James Worthy draft pick to make them completely unbeatable. But does this? But does is it fair? that a competent team like the San Antonio Spurs can't get the next, next Tim Duncan because they keep making the playoffs and that yet the Timberwolves are sucking. Well, they have, but because they have ways out of that, but, well, they, but we've but, seen but, it happen all the time because the I reason know. the Knicks but it's are still not fair, but it's still not fair. Like, it's um, still like, I don't think it's fair that the Knicks have to like, just get lucky <laughs> to get, a chance to get a Zion, right? Like they, you know, like, like so there was this one draft proposal called the wheel that essentially it was just, you know, everyone got the same number of all the picks over the course of a 30 year cycle. Yeah. And that, and that it all, and that it didn't matter. And I kind of like that because it's like, you know what, why, if, if the Spurs are that great, why shouldn't they have a chance to get a great player because and they're being kind of punished for being good. Well, the thing is, as much as I have a healthy, healthy, healthy respect for the talent of everyone in the draft, especially the best players in the draft, the truth of the matter is there's a great level of skill in managing that managing that talent. And you can ruin good talent and you can take what appeared to be lesser talent and allow it to flourish. And that is so much of a factor that I think even if there was a completely egalitarian draft process, that still wouldn't replace the or overcome or make up for the factor of skill that it takes to utilize the draft process and the players that you get. And we see it all the time. Um, the, at worst, third best guard in this recent draft is Emmanuel Quickly. He was drafted, and that's at worst. Uh, I, I actually think he's right now better than Halliburton. Um, but, at, I mean, he was drafted. Who in the, the Knicks tw- could have drafted. <laughs> who we also could have drafted, right? Um, and that's a great example. In the reverse, Obi Toppin was supposed to arguably be the best forward in the draft. And By the way, to- which he may eventually be. He just happens he to be playing behind an all-star. So, well, and, and, this is, and this is what I say to Knicks fans. You are literally – worshiping at the altar of a player who took six and a half years to turn into this. And this kid has played 300 minutes. Relax, (laughs) relax, right? Let him get the same time Julius Randle had at least in the first two or three years before you start throwing him under the bus. He looks good. I don't know what people like when he's out there. I'm like, that dude looks good. Yeah. His IQ is off the charts Uh, in again, less than like five NBA games worth of minutes. He'll be fine. Um, but point being is that's a skill though, even what you're talking about, right? How much do you play Obi? What kind of attention do you give him in practice? What kind of assistant coaches do you have? 
we look at and, and going back to Julius Randle, Jordan Clarkson, and uh, Brandon Ingram. These are all three right now great players, right? They are way above average players. Two of them have been all stars, and Jordan Clarkson will be sixth man of the year. And D'Angelo so, Russell made an awesome game too. If we were talking and about D'Angelo old, Russell, old Lakers, old Lakers, right? And these are all players that when they were shipped out of town, it was fairly unceremonious. Right. Because the Lakers had bad leadership. It wasn't the talent that they drafted. It was how they managed it. So and the reverse and, and you look at the Nets, it got to a situation where like the Raptors, it just seems like they can't get a bad player on their team. Everybody's productive. I saw Nick Claxton catch an alley-oop the other day. Like what's happening here? Why is everybody who shows up in this uniform able to play basketball? The reason the San Antonio Spurs are struggling is because they pissed off Kawhi Leonard when he said that he had a bum leg and they said, now nah, we think you should play. And he said, well, then I think you guys should kick rocks. And now they're paying for that a little bit by not having an elite talent. Point being, yeah, but but before that, 17 and 12, they're, no, they're doing great. They're, they're recovering for a team from that, that no one thought would make the playoffs. And, and they'd be, you know, 22 and five, if they had Kawhi. But my point is like, the, the thing is when Kawhi was drafted, he wasn't drafted as Kawhi Leonard. No. Right? It, it's so the talent scouting and the talent development skill is so much of a factor. It's not that I don't think that the wheel or something like it would make it more fair, like literally, technically, but I don't think it would ultimately create more parity and fairness because that other skill would still rise to the well, top. Well, no, but no, it's the, I, but here's the point. This is not right now. We have the most parity I've seen in forever. And I'm actually taking in the Eastern Conference, I think there's eight teams between like right over 500 and right under 500. Yeah. And it's not too much different in, in the Western Conference. And I, and part of that, I think actually we just need to kind of take this whole regular season with a grain of salt. I think this is, yeah, this is very much. Reminds me of the post uh, lockout season. Mm-hmm. Remember when the 76ers were like Drew Holiday and Iguodala, mm-hmm. like off this yep. huge, like they were just world beaters. And you're like, <laughs> this feels a little, that's, and I, I get a, I catch some of those vibes with the Jazz. I'm like, this is outside of Bogdanovich. Oh, really? I actually disagree. Well, um, well and what I'm saying is, but you go on, go on. I just think we got to take it with a little grain of salt. I just, I just think it's rare. Like you remember that year, the Atlanta Hawks won 60 games Were they mm-hmm. really that good. I mean, they're, they're good and they do all the things, but I just, I think the playoffs are the playoffs and we're going to see, I mean, the Miami heat and Los Angeles Lakers had no time off. Yeah. And if you went deep in the playoffs, you were dealing with that. And then you had some teams with too much time off. I just think it's a really weird season and we just shouldn't put too much uh, into what's happening, into what's happening right right now. But what I'm saying is, I don't think fairness and parity are the same things. What I'm saying is, you can have a fair system that doesn't necessarily create parity, but it does say, hey, all you know, that Sacramento Kings should have like I think some of these players, right? Like if you had a Marvin Bagley in San Antonio. Maybe that guy has like a 10 times better career because mm-hmm. he went to a place that wasn't dysfunctional. Right. And I think you can come up with a lot of different places. Like does Kawhi become Kawhi if he doesn't go to San Antonio? Mm-hmm. I think there's a strong case to say, no, he doesn't do that. And how many places like Brooklyn, like Toronto that develop 
these guys, the OG Ananobis and the Siakams, would those guys become who they are? Would Fred Van Vliet be Fred Van Vliet if he was playing in Minnesota? Probably not. And we've seen. And I, I agree with you that everybody gets into a different situation, but I think the problem is, is that it's subjective. Yeah, but but it's but it's it. I, but I think going to some of these franchises at the wrong time can literally almost be a death sentence, right? Remember when, like, remember when getting drafted to like the Washington Wizards for a certain amount of time was like when they had like Nick Young and they had, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, JaVale McGee and you're just like, just a clown okay, show that's around a great, John Wall. <laughs> that's a great example, right? You said clown show. You hear the stories that Gilbert Arenas talks about during those years. Well, he was a little, he was right before. He was the previous right. one, which was crazy the too. Point being is that the culture that they had in that locker room, that's on the players, right? Well, it's like on those the coach. Players, it's, a, it's, a, no, it's, yes, but who brings the players there? The organization. So it's, it's the, it's the general management to say, like, I remember when the Sixers were tanking and I was, what pissed me off was not that they were tanking. What pissed me off is that they didn't bring veteran yeah. players in there to just like set a tone mm-hmm. you guys. Cause to me, that's almost like fucked up one. It's important to actually keep those guys employed. And it's mm-hmm. important that just because you're of a certain age, that doesn't mean you don't have value. Yeah. But I think it's like, no, you need those players. They're like having a Taj Gibson on the Knicks. You to you. I love it. I love it. Is important, it. even if he doesn't play that much, because you want real professionals that can go out there and, and like, I bet you that dude practices, he's practicing hard. And they see, oh, if I don't fucking practice hard, that dude's going to elbow me in the chest. There's clips of it, actually. I don't <laughs> know if you've seen like clips of Taj Gibson coaching young bigs. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they got him, I was like, oh, he's basically an assistant coach for Obi. Yeah. And, you know, a third backup. It was like Herb Williams on the on the Knicks back. Then. Yeah. <laughs> so and my thing is this. The um, no situation, all situations are equal. And what sometimes appears ideal from the outside looking in isn't all that it cra- it's cracked up to be. And sometimes what appears to be um, terrible from the outside looking in isn't what it's cracked up to be. There's no way to get it to be totally fair. And yes, some people on this edge are very privileged and some people on this edge are kind of screwed. But on a rookie contract, if you don't want to sign for that, if you ball out and you take care of your body, you'll be fine in a couple of years, right? Like that's, and that's I think that's good enough. Um, I don't think it has to be any better than that. No one judges you on your career from the ages of 19 to 23. So- you know, oh, yeah. I, I love the people calling people bus after two weeks. Well, we know they're idiots, though. <laughs> like, we know they're idiots, you know? So it's like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, is it fair? Is it perfect? No, but I think it's working fine and more concerning than the system by which we get players and all this other stuff is the hiring of coaches and, and executives so that they're not completely incompetent. Because the thing that happened in Sacramento that's made them a dumpster fire is that that owner came in and ruined everything. And he's completely incompetent. Bobby Devok also sucks, but right. And the fish is rotting from the head, right? So we have the same. Despite that, they've been pretty good. Despite they actually have a lot of talent. They have a lot of talent. They have a lot of talent. Like they're they they should not be what they are. Darren Fox is good. Halliburton's good. Harrison Barnes is decent. Um. 
Rashawn Holmes is okay. Rashawn Holmes is all right. Like yeah. they have. And Bagley is good when he's on the court. He just can't stay on the court. Yeah, I, th- I think he needs a coach really bad. He needs to come on to the Knicks and get that, uh, get them teachings. But, <laughs> but my point is, like, their problem is organizational, not talent. They should be the eighth seed in the West every year, no question. They got some actual young studs out there, but they're being completely squandered. And when those guys resign for that contract, that's on them. Like, De'Aaron Fox, you want to get paid? That's cool, but you knew you were in Sacramento when you made that choice. Yeah. Right. Well, because, dude, you can you can go somewhere else. You can go to Chicago or New York and become an all star and get that money in a couple of years. Like you can make that decision. I know I know they made the rookie contract really hard to walk away from, but these guys don't walk away from it. And at that point, it's on you because it's a fairly short, you know, intern period, if you will a fairly short probationary period as a player to have to suffer through a bad organization for, you know, the three years or four years or whatever, depending on where you were drafted or two years, depending on where you were drafted. Okay. So just to wrap all this up, do you think the real economy can take some knowledge and wisdom from the, the way sports teams, their more socialistic approach, which is pro union, (laughs) Pro <laughs> awarding bad behavior, pro uh, maximum salaries, pro co- competitive balance, aka wealth redi- redistribution and resource redistribution. Should we take more from these little incubators of economic theory? Here's what I think we should take. Uh, and I apologize if this isn't as directive of a yes or no, but. No, I, no, I love that you're a little like, you're like no, Doc. Like, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm a, a prog nerd, Doc. I got to do this. Like, listen, Doc, we're not all Keynesians over here. So <laughs> your shit, get, get, get your shit together, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> right. So um, the thing that we can take first and foremost is that we're all on the same side. Because who's, who's, who's the we? Uh, we participating in the, let's say, American economy mm. to start with, Right. And I think you could do this on a city level as well. But if we had a better awareness that we're all on the same team, that me prospering is you prospering and vice versa on down the line, we would just think a little bit differently, first and foremost. Second, it's the awareness of value. One of the great things to happen with this most recent current, most recent generation of NBA players is their financial literacy is skyrocketing. And, you know, credit to LeBron James. I know he's part of the people leading the charge. Guys like Iguodala are out there leading the charge. Um, Really learning the ins and outs of this and becoming aware of their value, of the workings outside of their scope, of not just saying, I just need to work on my body and my free throws, but also saying, let me gain an understanding of this and have a team inform me of this so I make better decisions and I know what to at least ask Chris Paul to argue for on my behalf when they go and hash out these agreements and stuff. What we can take from that individually and collectively is the burden of financial literacy. You know, us having an understanding of the stock market, us under, us having an understanding of where our resource is going from a political standpoint, how and when. I think the average American has zero concern about that. The average American, and they only care when it either hurts them or helps them in a very, very visible way. But for most of the day, 
they'd rather just be, you know, watching their shows, taking care of their family, going to work, taking care of their responsibilities and not being bothered. And I think in the completely interconnected economy that we have, both locally and globally, we don't have as much of a luxury of that ignorance that we had before. So, you know, I think on an individual level, we can do that. And the thing I would take from James Harden is understanding that the system needs chaos to evolve. And when you know your value, first of all, James Harden made himself a figure of value. That was the primary thing. None of this works if he's not a figure of value and knows it in an exacting kind of way. So take that. On an individual basis, make yourself valuable in some kind of way. There's no reason to be expendable, right? Like think better of yourself than to be a cog in the wheel. It's nothing wrong with working at Mickey D's to, you know, to make a buck, but don't see yourself as someone who can only do that if you would rather be doing something different. Yeah. If you'd rather be doing something different, train that skill, increase that value. And then once you increase that value, your value is the system, right? James Harden knows that collective bargaining, signed a contract, but, 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 but. The collective bargaining agreement is that this many people watch me play, this many people show up to the arena when I play, I win this many games, I sell that many shoes. That's the collective bargaining agreement. The little piece of paper that we all signed is, you know, a nice idea that we will keep to when it's convenient for either side. And those are the rules that you billionaires have been working on for hundreds of years. And now, as in James' case, a millionaire, in our case, depending on who you are, maybe just a thousand there, right? But you work by the rules of value. That's what the actual free market is, not the numbers on the page and the agreements and the contract you sign, because for, again, hundreds of years, maybe even longer, the people who've had all of the gold have torn those agreements up at the drop of a hat when they, when they needed to change the rules to suit them, right? We see them change the rules to suit them all the time. And you need to put yourself in a position to act out in your best interests when the time comes so that you can prosper. And so many of the businesses and industries and systems that we have are actually the result of rule breakers. And I think we can take that example and uh, all, you know, try to find a way on the Brooklyn Nets if we need to. Okay, I think you more, your perspective is very individualistically based in. I was more talking about broad systems, but I see how you, <laughs> you're like, like, Doc, it's the power of the one and you, you have to project. <laughs> I get that. So I think, I think, um, you know why? Because, because then what you ask your politicians for changes. Yeah. Right. Like when you are just go, go, going along to get along, you, you buy the story that they're telling you. But when you as an individual have a certain amount of uh, empowerment and awareness, then you ask for different things. And then the you know shucking and driving that the politicians do to get this going changes according to the people. And we see it all the time. We see politicians change their song because the people are singing a different tune. Mm -hmm. So if the people don't change the tune that they're singing, the system doesn't change unless the system is serving itself. And we never want the system serving itself because that's when it does get into tinfoil hat, small cabal territory of a bunch of people who have all the connections and all the money getting alone in the dark room and saying, how do we have better connections and more money without cutting all the peons in? Right on. Well, listen, brother, 
I appreciate <laughs> you coming on here, bringing, like I said, you're the, uh, my minister of intellect and wisdom. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> what's the word i was looking for i, I can't forget the, i this oh you're my impresario there you go <laughs> <laughs> i like that i like that <laughs> uh, thanks for having me man it was a pleasure and a great conversation yeah they can hear a, you know a comic book artist and a guitar player pontificate on subjects where we're not qualified <laughs> that's that's what happens that's what happens and doc i was to say before i get out of here as a guitar player i've been playing my fingers off Oh, okay. You can talk about me. that more after after the after. You're like the, you're uh, like first you're like he called me a comic artist, and I took that personally. <laughs> and I took that personally. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything coming out? People should uh, keep an eye out for. Uh, yes, uh, issue four of Bite Sized, my children's book that Ooh. well all ages book that I'm doing with um, uh, Upshot Studios, uh, Axel Alonzo, Cullen Bunn, some uh, Snake Bite Cortez. Uh, issue three is out right now. Issue four is coming out. If you have young people uh, that are getting into reading, this is an excellent book for them. It's along the lines of like Gremlins and, you know, batteries not included and stuff like that. Ooh. You can find it very easily on my Twitter, do a search for me and stay tuned for my Twitter because I do have an announcement coming up at some point in March for um, my first writing credit in comics. Um, that should be pretty exciting for fans of this podcast. All right. Well, me and you, we should do something together and then sell it and then become billionaires like all these other motherfuckers, all right? I, I want to do it. Let's increase our Let's value, Doc. That's right. We need to, <laughs> all right? We need, we need to get out there and, and get, get some of that Marvel money, all right? That's what I'm talking about. You know, sick of, uh, who's, who's it? Who, who runs Disney? One of them people. Share some of that. Share some of those billions, all right? <laughs> no doubt. Well, thank you so much for having me, man. Anytime, man. Uh, and uh, I will talk to you soon and take care. And thank you again for the... Uh, Wonderful thoughts and opinions. Talk to you soon, Same. brother. Same to you. Bye-bye.
So that was a new band called The Dead Year and a song called Scars. And it features my old buddy, Chris Norris, guitar player, used to play with Darkest Hour and Straight Line Stitch and Scar the Martyr. And he actually filled in for God Forbid, believe it or not. I'll probably get him on the show at some point. Very talented guy. Very cool song. And if you want to go check them out, they have a website, The Dead Year. Dot com And it's got a link to all the streaming places and then Bandcamp. I actually bought that track and uh, wanted to give them a shout out. So go check them out. Support them. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Blake. Listen, it's pretty deep. You know, we're we're two guys. You know, we think we're we're getting deep in there. <laughs> uh, but I, I thought it was a fun conversation. I could talk to that guy about anything. But I don't know. Did we make good points? It was ridiculous. Is anyone even listening now? I have no idea. If you made it this far, you get a gold store, gold star from old Doc Coyle. Uh, what else is going on? Just a reminder, if you're not, please sign up to the Bad Wolves Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash Bad Wolves. We're funneling some cool exclusive content through there. And obviously, it's a little, it's a little weird right now. No singer. But we're still doing stuff. We're doing live streams. We're there for you guys. So please go over there, sign up, support the band. It means the world to us. What else is going on? I'm trying to think. Oh, new Architects record just came out. Go check that shit out. That shit. I've been blasting that shit. That band is. They're like, you know, they were already a big band. I think they'd done like Wembley Arena. And so, you know, I tried to go see them out here in, in LA, in Anaheim, sold out. I was like, oh, maybe let me go, like scalp a ticket or like like go to those resale sites. Tickets are like three hundred dollars. So the so Architects is it's about to be the next big band. I I think I can I can feel it in in my bones. So check that record out. It's it's really amazing. I, I've been listening to that. What else is going on? I don't know. Not a whole lot. Well, actually, a lot is going on. But like I said, I'm in, I'm in I'm in chill chill space. I've been playing guitar a lot. That's been fun. Trying to, you know, work on the skills, been trying to sing a little bit more. You know, I'm, I'm working on some stuff. But all right, like I said, we have some great shows coming up. And I'm excited. I'm excited to uh get great content content out for all of you. But I'm gonna get out of here. Mama's out. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.